Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 96, Dr. Winfried Corduan on The Case for Original Monotheism. Before we get started, I wanted to thank an iTunes user named Philosophizer. He or she left a very nice review in the U.S. iTunes store. By the way, I will be able to see your review if you leave it in a store associated with another country, like Canada or the U.K., for instance. And I generally like to read new reviews. This one's a little embarrassing, but I guess I'll read it anyway. So the user Philosophizer says, quote, What makes this podcast particularly good is its host, Dale Tuggy. He's an analytic philosopher who is a leading expert on the Trinity, which means that his interviews can go very deep. That said, he also takes some care to make things intelligible to the educated layperson. If you like philosophy of religion, in particular Christianity, this is can't-miss stuff. End quote. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's very kind. If you think that review is a little over the top, or even if you don't, please go to the iTunes store and leave your own review of the Trinity's podcast. You can find instructions for this at trinities.org slash blog slash review. Now, on to my interview with Dr. Corduan. Dr. Winfried Corduan is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy and Religion at Taylor University in Upland, Indiana. Born in Germany, he has degrees from the University of Maryland, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and Rice University. The author of many scholarly articles, his books include A Tapestry of Faiths, 1993, Islam, A Christian Introduction, 2001, The Holman Old Testament Commentary Volume on First and Second Chronicles, 2004, Pocket Guide to World Religions, 2006, Neighboring Faiths, Second Edition, 2012, and In the Beginning, God, A Fresh Look at the Case for Original Monotheism, in 2013. A blogger since 2005, you can find his blog and website at wincorduan.com. Dr. Corduan, welcome back to the Trinity's Podcast. Thank you, Dale. It's once again a real pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. This week we're talking about your 2013 book entitled In the Beginning, God, A Fresh Look at the Case for Original Monotheism. This is a really interesting book, and I, I learned a lot about this. How long have you been thinking about this issue of original monotheism, and what is that claim? Well, the claim is that religion did not start, as many people believe, on the level of people worshipping spirits, doing magic, and so forth, but that human religion began with people believing in a single God who created the universe and worshipping him and then uh, abiding, to a certain extent, by the rules that he has given to humanity. So, religion started with a single God. I first got intrigued by this topic a long, long time ago. I was still in school in Germany before we moved to the United States. So, I must have been 12, maybe. And uh, part of the curriculum at the time in the schools was regular uh, religious instruction. Of course, uh, for that we divided into Protestant and Catholic sections. And there was one day when the Protestant teacher was sick or something, and the uh, Catholic priest who gave the religion instruction took his place. So we were all together. And he started to talk about the fact that oftentimes tribal people, as I would call them now, believe in one God. They may not tell you about it uh, for quite a while, and all you may see is their interaction with spirits and so forth. But if you really get to know them and what they believe, you find out that behind all of that is the belief in a single God who really is the only God. Well, that had me intrigued. And so then at that uh, fairly young age, I uh, started to think about that, 
Then uh, in my college years, I uh, read a book by Robert Brow on religion, and he mentioned the same thing, that there is good evidence for uh, an original monotheism. And uh, then as I studied religions and immersed myself in that topic, I became more and more convinced that they were right. And therefore, the Bible also was right in saying that religion began with the one personal God who revealed himself. Now, obviously, if a person believes in a literal Adam and Eve, then they're going to think that the first human religion was monotheism. Now, when you actually make the case for monotheism in this book, does your case depend on young earth creationism, or does it depend on belief in a historical Adam and Eve? It does not depend on young earth creationism. It does certainly imply creation. But you see, so much has changed in anthropology over the last few decades that really allows me to make that case without tying myself directly to a specific theology of creation. The belief used to be commonly accepted that human beings, homo sapiens, evolved in different times and places around the world. So if at that time, that was basically the belief when Wilhelm Schmidt, whom we'll get to in a minute, wrote his works. If you say that there was one point of origin, then that would have been considered laughable and uh, just not scientific. But that has changed now thanks to uh, genetic studies and uh, studies of uh, mitochondrial DNA and so forth. It's not disputed, but it is widely accepted now that there was an original set of Homo sapiens, who uh, we could call Adam and Eve, who actually started the species Homo sapiens, and uh, very, very importantly, that they are not descended from uh, Homo neanderthalis, from uh, the Neanderthal man. Uh, their origin is not just by evolution from uh, non-human beings, but they suddenly appear. Now, when exactly that was, uh, yeah, I'm not sure how much we can trust the calculations, but uh, the origin of humanity is not millions of years ago. When I say humanity, I mean, of course, then Homo sapiens, but uh, a much shorter time before then. So you have now a widely accepted belief in the single origin of Homo sapiens and Consequently, the fact that there are human beings all over the world implies that there must have been then a lengthy history of migrations. From that one place of origin, people wound up moving all over the world. Now, this idea of original monotheism, you mentioned that you had run across it a couple of times when you were younger, mm -hmm. and it was a minority viewpoint that was out there. It's interesting to me as a philosopher who works on early modern philosophy that things have flipped around quite a lot. The Cambridge Platonists were some of the earliest real scholars who tried to dig into other religions, and they believed original monotheism. Mm -hmm. Then again, David Hume was kind of an early religion scholar, and he seemed to think that monotheism was a later development. And then it flipped around in the... 19th century. Uh, it's unclear to me exactly why, other than just uh, general evolutionary ideas were in the air. And I have to confess that before I looked into this much, I just kind of assumed, I, I'm sure I picked this up from historians or anthropologists or others, I just kind of assumed that monotheism must be a product of, you know, highly advanced civilization, that somehow this is not something you would find apart from those, those civilizations. 
but it's not so obvious. I mean, human beings are human beings. Their cognitive capacities are the same. Right. What's so hard about monotheism that you'd have to be some kind of modern man, you know, 20th century or whatever, whatever your idea of a modern advanced mm -hmm. culture is, why would you have to be one of those people to be a monotheist? In fact, as Andrew Lang said, you have two potential options there, or at least that's how I'm paraphrasing him. One would be that in various times and places, various religions went through various stages in various uh, complex ways, ultimately to arrive at monotheism. The other option is, at least one other option, is the easier one, and I think the far more natural one. You look at the world around you and you ask, who made all this? And uh, it doesn't take a lot of intelligence to ask that, though I maintain that, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, as you say, people were as intelligent as we are, but uh, it's a very simple and very natural question. People are used to things not just coming into existence without being caused. So to look at things and ask, is there a maker behind this, would be a very, very natural thing to think of. And as even David Hume points out, it also seems natural to assume only one source, unless there's some specific reason to assume more than one maker of the world. Another thing I think that I assumed, and I'm not sure I really had any good reason for this now, is that the way you get to be a monotheist is you start off with a whole bunch of gods and you somehow pare them down to one. And a lot of people, I think, suppose that this is due to, I don't know, nationalistic pride? You know, our god's better than yours. Hey, our god's our God's the only God, or our God's the highest God. Uh, well, that's one way you could mm -hmm. change into monotheist, but couldn't you also fall out of it as well? Just start with one God, and then for various reasons, now you're serving many gods. Well, as a matter of fact, that's what happened in the historical record. The direction of development, more often than not, is away from monotheism into polytheism. I mean, we can say with, I think, a pretty good amount of assurance that Indo-European people at one time worshipped one god who was in the sky called Dios Pitar in Sanskrit, Zeus or Jupiter or Tyr or whatever, and uh, that he is the one creator god, and that uh, then he accumulated other gods as it were, in the minds of the people. I mean, it all has to come back to uh, not what is a acceptable theory, but uh, the data. Looking at what happened in history and then by anthropological methods trying to establish what we can know about uh, the potentially original religion of human beings. We'll get into the case for original monotheism in just a second, but one more preliminary comment I had was, as I read your book and you were quoting these scholars, particularly late 19th century, early 20th century scholars, over and over there were these embarrassing statements to the effect that, you know, savages, primitives, and so on couldn't possibly have had this wonderful idea of monotheism, and they must have got it from Westerners, they must have got it from missionaries. Mm -hmm. I mean... It's just a big, a big assumption on display for everybody to see. It was so hard for most people to even bring that into question. I'm looking for a quote here that goes back to uh, Hartland, a scholar. No, I can't find it now, but he says, how can we expect people who don't, who don't have an organized government and who wear loincloths or whatever and can't even count up to seven, how can we expect those kinds of people to have such a lofty idea as monotheism? And uh, that's a non-sequitur if I ever heard one. It just doesn't add up, as it were. What difference does it make how high you can count or what style your clothes are? to whether you believe in a single God who created the world. 
So, Dr. Cordwan, who was Wilhelm Schmidt? A lot of the book is about him and the fate of his work, and what did he do, and why do you think his work is important? As you mentioned, it's not that there were not people who believed in an original monotheism throughout the 19th century, and of course, uh, many religious people who are not scholars, Christians, Muslims, and so forth, have embraced that belief all along. But uh, what Wilhelm Schmidt did, and he followed a British scholar named Andrew Lang, is to put the belief in original monotheism on sound scholarly footing, apart from just making it an object of faith among theistic believers. He did so by applying a method that discriminated between earlier and later cultures. Let me uh, start with what Andrew Lang said and uh, then pick up with what Schmidt added to it. Andrew Lang was a disciple of E.B. Tyler, who was a leading advocate of the evolution of religion, that religion began on a very, quote, primitive level, savage people who believed that the world was filled with spirits and one needed to do rituals in order to appease them. And then eventually uh, this belief in spirits became a belief in many gods and then finally turned into monotheism. Well, there was a man named Howitt who was doing a lot of anthropological work in Australia, studying the beliefs of various Australian tribes. Andrew Lang read through his reports and came to realize that there were some tribes who believed in a single god and worshipped the single god as the only god. And there were some tribes who believed in uh, many different spirits and served them. Now, he was not able to tell which of those tribes might represent the earliest religion of humanity, but he did think that the kind of monotheism, we can call it that, that were portrayed in those reports could not have evolved from animism, from the belief in many spirits. There didn't seem to be any linkage. So he said that as far as he could tell, some tribal cultures apparently held to a monotheism that was not based on some earlier kind of religion. Now, in his heart of hearts, he thought that those tribes uh, represented the earliest human cultures. He did not have a way of arranging a chronology in order to make that case, unless he was severely criticized by others for drawing that inference. Wilhelm Schmidt's contribution then. Wilhelm Schmidt was a Catholic priest who uh, studied anthropology. He formed an anthropological organization initially to help missionaries. He was German, but spent quite a bit of time living in Austria. And he compiled the reports of anthropologists from all over the world. And then by applying his method, the so-called culture historical method, he was able to show that those cultures which seem to be the least developed in other aspects of culture are actually the ones that have a pretty clear monotheistic religion. You know, there's no denying that cultures have developed there are cultures still that don't have pottery, don't have metals and so forth, and live on a total foraging basis. And the assumption is that those least developed cultures also represent uh, what humanity may have been like in its earliest stages. 
and among them, the religion is monotheistic. Now, the description of the one God does not entirely dovetail with the description of God in the Bible, though in many cases it comes very close. But the fundamental fact is that they only recognized one God as the real God. Now, Dr. Corduan, what was Schmidt's magnum opus? You mentioned it just very briefly, but tell us a little more about it. Is this a little pamphlet that we can just pick up and read? Ah, uh, you wish. His, <laughs> and I know why you're asking that. His magnum opus is a 10-volume set averaging 800 to 1,000 pages each in German called Der Ursprung der Gottesidee. And he never got to finish it. He died before it was finished. I'm not sure it would ever have been finished. What's the English title? Well, it would be The Origin of the Idea of God, but there is no English translation of it, and I don't think there ever will be. Now, uh, before going back to that for a second, there is an English translation of a summary of the first volume, which is called The Origin and Growth of Religion, Facts and Theories, Wilhelm Schmidt translated by H.J. Rose, and that has just come out again. Actually, the way that this came about, the book has been around and many libraries had carried it. You could buy your own if you were willing to spend, say, $150 or so if one was available on Amazon. But uh, I gave a paper on Schmidt and original monotheism at a conference a couple of years ago. And a person in attendance, Mark Phillips, he heard me mention that the book was not very accessible. And he approached the copyright holders and uh, the ones who had all the rights and republished the book. So it's now available at just $25 or something like that. So it is possible to read at least that part of Schmidt's work in translation. Now, to come back to his magnum opus, The Origin of the Idea of God, is uh, an extremely detailed analysis of the various reports on different tribal religions. So we're not just dealing with someone who came out with a theory and then grabbed whatever uh, material was available to support his case, but he, uh, he did thorough studies of the documentation. The man was truly a genius, and of course, being celibate uh, probably contributed to the availability of time that he devoted to those things. But it's a very, very carefully documented study by applying the cultural historical method to these different cultures. And uh, then the conclusion uh, is, as I said, that those cultures which seem to have deviated the least from what may have been original human culture, who show the least development, also hold to a monotheistic religion. You go into some detail in a chapter or two in your book about what his methods were, what his evidence was, and I think this is maybe the trickiest part to understand. I thought of an analogy, I don't know, see if you think this is a good analogy for what he was doing. So imagine that we have a tray in front of us. It's a very oddly shaped tray. It has nooks and crannies around the edges. <laughs> and on the tray we put chalk balls. There's a red one, a blue one, a green one, a yellow one. And then we roll them around for a while, and they bump into each other, and then we stop and examine. Uh, and we'll be able to tell kind of which ball bumped into which ball, because it'll leave a colored mark on the other one. Maybe we'll see some trails on the tray. 
We'll be able to tell maybe if one of the balls is relatively unaffected because it ended up in one of the nooks and crannies. doesn't have as many marks on it. So the balls are like the cultures, and he's looking at specific features of cultures and trying to figure out which ones were influenced by others when, and then kind of working backwards to unravel the causal tapestry and find which ones are the least affected. Because you can't just pick up a culture and look at the date. Oh, this one's older than that one. And you can't just make an intuitive judgment. Oh, these people don't have shoes, so they must be really primitive. So he's trying to actually reason back to which ones are most similar to the original ones. Is that a decent analogy? It comes close. When you're stating the purpose correctly... You're making it sound a little harder than it really has to be. It gets complex in the sense that uh, there are a lot of cultural markers or forms that you have to deal with, but the, uh, the basic principle isn't all that difficult. Just uh, think in terms of uh, our culture here. Okay, uh, the European culture now dominates. There are also uh, Native American people living here. Now, who was here first? Is it difficult to tell who came first, uh, the Europeans or the uh, American Indians? I don't think so. And I think uh, archaeologists or whoever several hundred years from now will be able to tell that the Europeans came later than the American Indians and supplanted them and had them adapt to European culture and so forth. The, the basic principle is, you know, it's based on the idea that, uh, first of all, uh, there was migration and that all other things being equal, the more developed cultures would displace or absorb the less developed cultures. Because they would prosper. Yeah. And they will have better weapons, better ways of surviving. So you're going to find the least developed cultures on the geographical margins. The uh, area that they may have occupied at one time has now been taken over by more developed cultures. So uh, you have, say, an area where there are people living in the desert their technology does not go far beyond sticks and stones. They're living in a place where you can barely survive. And adjacent to that area is a place where it is much easier to survive. And it's occupied by people who have a higher level of technology. Now, it seems to me not all that difficult to speculate that the people with the higher technology drove the less developed people into the less desirable places. So it's not making a value judgment about which culture is better. It's just simply some will outcompete others. Right, right. Yeah, there's absolutely no value judgment in there. I, I mean, I don't know if a culture with... CDs and uh, microwaves is better than a culture without all those, quote, conveniences. But, uh, you know, there's no questioning that the technology is on a much more developed level. And that will make a difference in how people migrate. Now, it's also fascinating here in looking at the history of anthropology, migration until 15, 20 years ago was a taboo subject. In, at least in American anthropology, you were not supposed to study the migration of various tribes because uh, it, it would bring in too much speculation, but you were supposed to just look at a tribe or a culture as it existed right then and there when it was being studied. Well, if you, you take that point of view, you, you're really eliminating a lot of uh, sources of information and a lot of good ways of explaining different data. Fortunately, that taboo has now been lifted. And uh, so, again, that was one of the areas where Wilhelm Schmidt really uh, broke 
with uh, what many anthropologists held in counting in the idea of migration. But since it's become more accepted that humanity began at one particular time and place in some way, and of course we believe in creation, that the only way that the earth could have been populated is through constant streams of migration where the more developed cultures then took over areas that had been occupied by less developed ones. So the point is not that we can tell necessarily which culture is the earliest or that we found the original culture, but as best we can tell what the oldest are, they tend to be monotheistic, and that is what one would expect if originally humans had been monotheistic. Mm-hmm. You know, all science is a matter of probability, but uh, the probabilities are pretty high that the correlation holds. Uh, it's not just, uh, well, let us theorize that the least developed culture is the, is the one that's most closely to original human culture, but there's pretty good reason to believe that based on the data that, that you find, the migration data, the, uh, the various uh, levels of uh, providing of uh, survival, of uh, gathering food and so forth. Uh, Hunter-gatherer societies are most likely much older or more representative of an older culture than ones that have agriculture or that raise cattle. That much seems to be beyond controversy. I mean, most, most people think that agricultural societies arose at some relatively recent time if not in uh, known history, at least at some point. It's not as much beyond controversy as you might like to think. It's recently become much, much more accepted. But uh, a lot of these things which in Wilhelm Schmidt's time, that is the first half of the 20th century, a lot of these things were disputed during the time that he did his work, and they appear to be common sense to us now, but People just did not want to get involved in chronology. They just wanted to say, okay, you have these kinds of cultures and we take them as they are. There's, I'm speaking at least from the perspective of an anthropological field worker. Dr. Cordoan, in the course of the book, many times you talk about monotheism. You contrast it not so much with polytheism, but with animism. How do we define these terms, monotheism and animism? Animism is the belief in spirits, usually that the whole world is pervaded with spirits, and that can include nature spirits, ones living in trees and in the water and so forth, and ancestor spirits spirits of departed human beings and so forth it can also include spirits that live in the fire or uh, whatever and uh, then the way that you relate to them is through rituals and magic they're not superior beings they may be invisible and that's why they can do things that we can't but they're not omniscient or omnipotent or anything like that and uh, we must make sure that uh, we placate them make offerings th to them to keep them happy inform them of things that are happening in the world and you know, that requires shamans uh, and uh, eventually priesthood and so forth then polytheism would, in an evolutionary scheme, would mean that some of the spirits have been raised to the level of truly superior beings. They have much, much more power than we do. 
we must obey them and uh, again they require sacrifices to keep them happy and so forth then there's another stage before we actually get to monotheism that usually has been stipulated and that is henotheism which says that you have uh, many gods but typically a uh, particular geographical location or a tribe or family or whatever will worship only one you recognize the reality of many gods but only one of them is the god to whom you're devoted uh, that's for example the situation in the middle east during old testament times Okay, I'm not saying that the Old Testament teaches henotheism, but most of the cultures around Israel practiced henotheism. They believed that their God was special to them and lived in their country, prospered in their country, protected his people, but moved to another location would not have power. People in another location would have their God, all those gods would be real, but you only worshipped one. And so then monotheism would finally arise, according to this scheme, when uh, the people thought that one god, this, this one god, was actually the only god, and the others either did not exist or were just inferior spirits once again. I was wondering if you could actually, Dr. Cordoan, read us a paragraph that you say on page 186 in your book. Okay. Somewhere one needs to be able to draw a line to distinguish between when we are looking at monotheism alongside spirit veneration and when we are really observing animism with a part-time god in the background. That judgment has to be based on the importance of the supreme being and the spirits within the lived culture. To some extent, it comes down to judgment call of whether the God or the spirits are dominant. It appears to me that if the spirits receive all of the day-to-day -day attention and the God is only brought out of storage from time to time, we can safely describe such a religious culture as animistic. Let me give you an example. Please do. African religion. Some people, such as John Mbidi, say that virtually all of African traditional religion is monotheistic. And actually, I added the, ver the word virtually. I'm not sure he even qualifies it to that extent. Because, and I'm going to say virtually, all African traditional religions believe in one single creator god. Now, actually, I'm not sure that's entirely true. The Zulus are a, a big question mark and all of that, but that's beside the point. Mbidi and others are saying they are monotheistic because they all believe in one god even though they may occupy most of their time by uh, venerating the spirits, ancestors, and so forth. But ultimately, and they may not know this, but ultimately they are uh, actually worshiping the one God because the ancestors or other spirits then intercede with the one God on behalf of the people. Now, that's a little bit bold. It is true that in most African religions, sticking with that example, you do find a creator god, but I'm not sure that you can necessarily say that they are therefore monotheists because they really do not spend much time worshipping the god at all. A good example would be the uh, the Kikuyu basically venerate the spirits. Now, people try, like to make a distinction between veneration and worship, though it's not always clear either where one leaves off and the other one picks up. But basically, the religious life of the Kikuyu focuses on the spirits. 
In a time of disaster, say an epidemic or a drought or something like that, and only then they will gather as a community and worship God, invoke God, whom they call Ngai, and then and only then will they pray to him. And then uh, if the problem is fixed, they will totally ignore him again and go back to their spirit veneration. And so it would seem to me that it's uh, a little bit going too far to say that they are practicing monotheism. So like many tribes in Africa, they have a story about how the highest god somehow became uninvolved. Maybe he used to be more involved, but for some reason he's not so much now. We have to deal with these lesser beings. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Cordoan, you're defining monotheism as including monolatry, uh, exclusive worship of the one God, at least if we lay aside right. maybe some lesser veneration. Right, yeah. See, they, and this is why there is a certain amount of ambiguity. I mean, we Christians, Muslims, Jews, who are very much self-consciously monotheists, still believe in other spirits, believe in angels and demons and so forth, but we do not worship them. Or should not. Now, Schmidt as a Catholic is in a little bit of a bind there, more so than some of the rest of us would be because of the veneration of the saints and of uh, Mary and so forth. But uh, still, I would not deny that Roman Catholic Christianity is monotheistic. So there is a, a certain amount of ambivalence there. You, you cannot necessarily always say clearly, at least as far as I'm concerned, this tribe is monotheistic, this tribe is animistic in their practice, because simply the recognition that there are other spirits, and even dealing with them to a certain extent, does not necessarily compromise the monotheism. But on the other hand, if you know your day-to-day -day religion involves only the spirits year in, year out, and then only at a certain point you may invoke the uh, actual creator God, I would say that goes beyond the reasonable bounds of what would be considered monotheism. Yeah, someone might think that they're just kind of bad monotheists. <laughs> um, I mean, imagine, a, imagine a guy that has, uh, he really only has one wife, but he also cavorts with women on the side, but he still just has one wife. It's just that he thinks he's, he has a practice anyway of also seeing other women. That's different than being a, a real polygamist. And so you might think here, well, yeah, they've got one God, but they think it's more important in most cases, to interact mm. with these lesser deities or spirits. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's an interesting illustration. I mean, you need to, to think in many cases of this person only coming to his wife when all the other women have let him down. That would be like the Kikuyu example. Dr. Cordon, you mentioned in your book that it has now become unpopular for scholars of religion to try to find out what the earliest form of human religion is. This really surprised me. That seems like a perfectly good question. And if Schmidt is right, it's an answerable question. So why have people given up on this? To be really honest, and uh, I'm not the only person saying this, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Rodney Stark, mm -hmm. a sociologist at 
Baylor, who is not nearly as conservative as I am in many ways, agrees with me that people dropped asking the question because they did not care for the answer. If you read the chapter after the exposition on Wilhelm Schmidt, on Iliade and Otto and uh, the, uh, the escape into the irrational, it becomes pretty clear that they simply did not want to accept the idea of a personal God who governs the world, who has binding standards of morality, and uh, so rather than deal with the answer, they wanted to drop the question. Now, that's a, that's a pretty heavy statement to make, I know, but I think it's uh, pretty believable. A case in point is if you look at the uh, lives of many of the anthropologists of the early 20th century, and I guess just right into our century, their lifestyle certainly would not have wanted them to have any evidence for a, uh, a personal God to whom they're accountable. There's a, a quote at the beginning of the book by Evans Pritchard, who says, look, let's just be frank about this. Much of the work of uh, cultural anthropology has been intended to discredit Christianity or to discredit religion and therefore by implication Christianity. So uh, you just can't get around that. In, in this case, this is true in others, the only possible rational answer was just plain unacceptable. And now I'm saying this, I don't want to create the idea that you know, there's a conspiracy or that these people lack all integrity or, or anything like that. But, you know, if the idea of God simply does not fit into your worldview, what are you going to do? You know, I, I used to tell my students when we talked about possibility of miracles, evidence for the resurrection of Christ, and so forth, and some of the theories that people came up with that just seemed so strange. But if your worldview, the one that, that you know, defines the entirety of your existence, as it were, is incompatible with a personal God to whom you would be accountable, or anything supernatural, then your worldview simply rules that out. Uh, just as, you know, I confess I would not be open to reading and studying in depth uh, a lot of books uh, that might defend Satanism. You know, so uh, I'm afraid, if it's something that, that I should be afraid about, that presuppositions just have had a lot to do with the way that this question has been approached in mainline scholarship. People on the street are well aware of the idea that one's religion might influence one's scholarship about religion. People might suspect a book because it's Catholic or Islamic or Buddhist. In other words, the scholar who's writing it is committed to some religion. Well, sure, there can be distortions. I mean, it just depends on the scholar, right? What people on the street I don't think are aware of is that sometimes very famous and influential scholars of religion are very wrapped up in an ideology that, honestly, sometimes it's really off the wall. Right. I read a book called The Politics of Myth, and it covers Jung, Eliada, and Campbell. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, Eliada and Campbell have just, you know, sold books by their tens of millions and mm. appear at Campbell's all over, used to be all over public television. And yeah. I mean, when you find out what their what their views are, they're really strange, and it actually takes some effort to get into their mindset and, and really understand what's going on. They're not traditional religious people, but they're not <laughs> no. they're not your secularist, you know, village atheist or just no. agnostics. I mean, there's something very <laughs> very yeah. interesting going on in each of those cases, which we can't get into. But yeah, boy, beware the source, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, uh, you know, ad hominem arguments are oftentimes fallacious, but 
you know, sometimes they have to be made. And uh, when you look at the lifestyles of some of these people, like Iliada, you can see why if they wanted to keep living the way they did, they needed to find something outside of traditional religion. I might mention, by the way, that uh, Iliade is my, uh, or one of my uh, foils in this book, but I appreciate his work. I think he has contributed a lot uh, in terms of a general understanding of some of the subconscious elements of religion, some of the images that we use. Same thing for Jung. And it's not that you have to only read Christian books or only read books about religion by people who are in that religion either. Sometimes I find that helpful books on religion are written by naturalists, by people who don't belong to any of the traditional religions. I like a lot of the work by a um, scholar at the University of Michigan named Donald Lopez on Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's, as far as I can tell, it's accurate. He's not selling me anything and he's not, you know, scoring cheap points or polemicizing. He's just telling you about the history of Buddhism and the different practices and beliefs and you don't have to be a Buddhist to do that. Right. And, you know, equally well, you don't have to be a Christian to do a good job uh, describing and explaining the things that Christians do and believe. But yeah, it just depends on the case. I mean... Right. Yeah. A lot of times there's more going on than meets the eye. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's an interesting project to sort things out. And it's all too easy to just demonize and not take into consideration what good there might have been, what truth they might have uncovered that we would profit from. There's no easy solution either. All I do is I find somebody who I think is trustworthy and then I look at what's in their footnotes and I read those people and mm -hmm. I kind of work at it. Um, but anyway, I appreciate your work, Dr. Corduan, and I hope people have a chance to check out this book, In the Beginning, God. And thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Dale. It was enjoyable speaking with you again. Today's Thinking Music has been Quasi-Motion by Kevin McLeod. You can listen to and download this whole track at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.